You know we're running really late. I mean, it's not my fault. You picked this darn interview with some guy in Swindon. Yeah, but it made sense. He's the new chairman of PIF. Yeah, so can you we're not, not moving can... very far. All those cows are crossing the road now. We're, we're in the countryside on our way to Swindon. All right, it's are you going to call him or shall I call him and tell him we're going to be late? Hi, Paul. Hey, would you, look, I'm really sorry. We're actually running late. We are stuck in traffic. We're about half an hour away from Swindon. Oh! Ah, right, yes. Um, yeah, we're turning the car around right now. You got it wrong. Oh, it's God. Paul Swinton. We've got to get to Clapham. This is Fintech Unplugged with Suresh Bajani and me, Robert Courtnich. Paul, hello. Good to see you guys. Yeah, we've been excited about your new role. Diane gave us some great feedback and we're really keen to get some thoughts on where you where you think this industry is going now. Um, and I'm also curious to know why you joined PIF and what, you know, because you kind of joined fairly recently. I know PIF's been going for a number of years and Diane spoke about that. But why did you join PIF? Why did I join PIF? That's a really good question. I think I went to a number of PIF events and they were always really, really good. I think there's, we always get unanimously good feedback on the events. And it was really through talking to a couple of members that I, that I really got involved because really their feedback was that PIF does such a good job on the, on the regulatory side, working with regulators, working to promote the industry with regulators and giving out information about our industry that... It just felt like, well, we can't do that ourselves as a relatively small organization in this. And, and But joining together with others, it just gives you a really good sounding board. It gives you the really good opportunity to, to get your issues out there and get those elevated up to regulators and, and other interested parties, whether it's a UK or, or European level. So that's why I got involved. And then once I started getting involved, um, you know, I was invited to join the board and then subsequently became, became chairman. And I think that was probably, from my perspective, it was really to get my voice her because as a program manager as opposed to an issuer or other people in the in the value chain the program managers are at the at the, at the coal face chipping away and they're the ones that really deal with the low down minutiae of of impacts of regulation and stuff and what we do so, so i mean we're talking about piff but just so what, what is your day job so my day job is i'm a, the ceo and co-founder of b4b payments um, so we're a program manager been around 12 plus sort of 13 years now so we've come through a long journey. A long and way. what is a program manager? Why would yeah. I use a program manager? What is it? Well, a program manager is the bit at the end of the chain. It's the bit that deals with the customers, generates the business, generates the product, and then works with a massive long value chain of issuers, bin sponsors, processors, KYC providers, you name it, card manufacturers. We, we pull it all together and we produce the end customer facing product and then service that customer. I guess the one thing I wasn't going to say, but, you know, did, since you did bring it up, is we joined the board together, but I did notice that as soon as you became chairman, I got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a cause and effect there. Cause and effect. No, I mean, we're a members organisation. Nothing personal. If it was Robert, it would have been personal, but I guess yeah, I, I, yeah. I would accept your uh, and We're, we're more than willing to accept you back as members, <laughs> in your, in both of yeah. you in your new role. And, uh, uh, no, I think it's something we will we'll definitely be looking at very soon now. Yeah. Um, I think as when you start up on this in this space, it's a it's a big hill to climb. <laughs> it is a big hill to climb. I mean, Robert, I mean, you're previously a payments lawyer, so you know a lot of that regulatory landscape that's ever shifting and changing. 
and some of the unintended consequences that come out of legislation aren't necessarily known at first, second, third or fourth drafts of it. It's only really when you get to, to the advice and mm. implementation guidelines that you suddenly take a step back and say, Christ, that could really, really hurt them. And, and it can really hurt the industry. And, and then likewise, on the flip side, it can be really beneficial as well. So it's all about opportunity. Brexit still looming. It's, it's difficult for our industry uh, in this sort of interregnum position where we don't really know what's happening. Absolutely. I, mean, I, th- I think, you know, let's not get sucked down into what's going to happen. But I think, yeah, I mean, it's caused massive problems for everybody, as it has for many industries. But we have been lucky enough to grow up over the last seven, eight years or so since money came in, since first payment services director came in, where we could passport services and work throughout Europe relatively impact-free, despite most of us being uh, logistically resident in the, in, in the UK. So there's a lot of big questions about what that's going to mean in terms of can you offer any form of services in the future? And, and it, there is no central answer to that. It's basically you have to go and talk to regulators in every single country around Europe to and understand what the position thing, is. All those regulators are setting out different rules on what's going to happen on a Brexit, which, <laughs> because they, they had no choice, if you think about it, they, they had to do something, and they had to get something in place. So you look at somewhere like Romania, they're, they're, they're virtually saying on the 29th, we're closing you down. Whereas Germany is saying, we'll give you 18 months and let, let's see how this works through. So the, there's this whole spectrum now. And it's, it's in some ways, it's like re- made you realise how diverse the different countries are that have been pulled together into this European Union. It, very much so. Funnily enough, when you, when you mentioned that, that's one of the things that I've really learned as I've become involved with PIF is just how that regulation gets formed. And I think the man in the street doesn't have any idea of the levels of complexity that law has to go through to first be debated, then go through the various chambers in the European parliaments, and then come back to the individual member states to be turned into local law. It's a long process. And if, if there's one thing I've learned out of the whole process here, that the UK was actually pretty strong in forming the direction of that legislation, particularly in our area, in the payment services area, because we're obviously leaders in it. So, so Robert, I'm going to let you go into the bin of confusion, but I've got one question okay. for, for Paul. I really want to ask him. So, And, and I keep saying this to all the people I meet at PIF. Um, so prepaid cards are everywhere, but nobody wants to call them prepaid anymore. As chairman of, of PIF, Prepaid International Forum, does that p- off? It doesn't, because I think there's two there's two sides to this argument. One is the, the those of us that are of a certain age that grew up with prepaid phones and, and contract phones, and it was seen as being possibly slightly derogatory to have a prepaid phone. And, and that's kind of how the industry may have been viewed many, many years ago. But I think prepaid are simply the rails that a lot of the most innovative and new products run on. And I don't think the, the, the man on the street or the consumers of those products actually give much of a damn about whether it's prepaid or not, what the rails are. I mean, you don't talk about bank account as being on debit rails. You don't talk about credit products being on credit rails. I mean, it's just a product. What a lot of companies have done is kind of dress up the rails a little bit and maybe they've moved away from the term, but the actual rails exists. I mean, I can give you lots of anecdotal stuff in what we do in terms of, we do mostly business payments and expense management solutions. And I've spoken to CFOs all over the place. They love the idea of prepaid because it just limits risk. So they can hand out prepaid cards to a bunch of their employees that they wouldn't necessarily give credit products to because of inherent risks. So these might be more junior members of staff or temporary workers. Or and, Robert. <laughs> or Robert. Uh, prepaid. We need, we need very high limits there, I think. Mostly, but, um, <laughs> that's uh, an extra level of 
due diligence. <laughs> yeah. But but no, I mean these FDs that I talk to, they're absolutely they love it because it manages their risk. It means that you know they can send people away on trips. They they know how much the budget's going to be. They can give give them per DMs, and it's kind of dealt with. And then, and then there's no chasing chasing around with the expense receipts later. So I'm not necessarily sure that I agree that prepaid is is, is now seen as a derogatory term. I think it may have been ten years ago, but I think we've moved beyond that now. Let, let, let me let me delve into the to the bin of confusion and uh, and and see see what see what we've got. He normally dives in, so yeah, no, I'm delving this week. You must have, must have had a big night last night. Hey, you're telling me, girl. Ah, well, this pumps straight back into the prepaid question. You won best prepaid program at the Carbon Payments Awards last month. What what makes B for B payments so special? I think it's just grey hair and longevity. Uh, we, 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 I think think yourself lucky you've got hair. hair. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. No, I think this probably recognises the fact that we've always focused very much on the product and on our customers. So we've seriously pivoted a few years ago, probably six years ago, into being mostly on corporate issuance and providing solutions to corporates. So as a result of that, we've now got thousands of, of corporate customers who really enjoy using the product all over the place so that the statistics bear that out, the profitability bears that out. And we've been around a long time with all the customers. We fulfill a lot of use cases. So hopefully that was the reason that we That's prevailed. It's a nice award to have, though. I mean, it's, the, it's the big one. I mean, I think, you know, I've been going to the Card and Payments Awards for years. In fact, we were first nominated in 2008. Wow. So uh, <laughs> it's taken a long time. Is this the first win? This is the first one at the Card and Payments that, Awards, so, so this is the big is a one. Good one. Yeah, this is where I'm going wrong. I mean, I've never won at the Card and Payment Awards, and the brown envelopes clearly don't work. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a golden envelope. So. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, go I'm gonna go in. Okay, so if you were in charge of the regulators, what would you be doing differently to help the prepaid sector or prepaid to grow? Well, I think first of all, I think we're pretty pretty lucky in this in this country in the UK in terms of the access that we have to regulators and that's changed massively in the last 10 years I think so they they do listen they are aware of things they don't necessarily follow kind of the advice that the industry can give them in all cases so if there's one thing they could do is probably listen a little bit more but I think we are pretty blessed in terms of the way that they do listen but prepaid is growing the prepaid rails as I mentioned earlier underpin many of the huge unicorn type products that are out there right now and and it's growing from being uh, a simple general purpose reloadable card it's grown through being a travel product into being a widely used bank account like product being a widely used business product and even gift cards are still massively growing as well on the open loop side so. so if you say that in the uk we're very lucky where is the the opposite where, where is it that you've seen crazy regulation done in such a terrible way I mean, crazy is probably a difficult term to use. I, mean, I think there's been a number of unintended consequences through regulation. So there was a number of knee-jerk reactions to events, such as some of the Paris attacks a few years ago, where there was just this kind of almost a call to make a blanket ban on prepaid cards without really understanding the implications. So, And we've seen situations like this before. Some regulators, and bearing in mind we're talking about 28 seem to be 27 potentially mm. countries that are all sitting around debating this stuff they don't necessarily they don't necessarily have the briefing papers they need to understand in detail what our industry does so if anything it's that it's, it's, it's this regulation or attempted regulation come out to ban prepaid cards as a knee-jerk reaction without really understanding 
I think, I think on the other side of this, though, Paul, I think we've, we've had this whole push into open banking, which I think almost extends what you can do with a prepaid card now, because you've got the ability to get IBANs, faster payments, yeah. all SEPA payments. This never used to be around. I mean, it, it's really almost post-PSD2 that this has come through. How are you finding that that's actually benefiting your, your business? Well, so there's two sides of this, isn't there? So there's there's the almost what I call a buy side and a sell side. So the, the buyers being the, the consumers of the data and the sellers being the providers of the data. And if we, if we remember where this all kind of started, and it may have started on separate tracks, but in the UK it started with the CMA basically trying to make the banks give over their data to new entrants to promote competition. And probably in parallel, there was a kind of bunch of stuff happening in Europe as well, which influenced the similar things, which... which turned into PSD2. So I think that, that was an admirable notion, um, actually getting the, the banks, the big banks, to, to pony up their, their data to new new providers is a fantastic idea. You know, anyone that's gone through a mortgage application that takes reams and reams of paper and weeks and weeks and weeks, going around in circles and circles and circles, if, if, if we win anything out of this, if we can now do a mortgage application in less than a week, that would be a massive win for everybody. On, on the flip side of that, the way that it's been expanded with PSD2 has actually created a lot of confusion in terms of the implementation, how we do it, and, and particularly with our members and, and, and within our own organization, because it's it's basically said that every payment payments institute, every EMI, e-money institution, has to, ha- has to provide access to its data via open banking without really looking at whether there's a market for that. So, you know, one side of the fence could say, well, you know, I offer, offer, create a very niche product in a very niche sector. Is anyone actually looking to buy that data, use that data? They may not be, but yet the regulation says you've got to put a huge infrastructure in place to support it. So that's, that's really challenging for a lot of members where you've got to make a huge amount of investment for effectively something you may not ever be called upon to use. That's the negative side, I suppose positive side, as I said, is as a consumer of the data, and, and I'm really excited to see some of the products that will be coming out as a result of open banking, but we've seen so far it's been a pretty slow adoption already. So well, I think it's people like Equifax and that have come in, Reuters, Money Supermarket, a lot of the aggregators in the market already have gone in, but I don't know whether we've really seen the fruits of their delivery yet. A lot of them have got the TPP tick box of the regulator now at the FCA, but how many of them are actually using it? And how many of them will use it com- can use it commercially? I mean, that's where the rubber really hits the road of all of this is, you know, yes, the data's there. Yes, it may help you influence decision. It may make you make better financing or loan-based decisions or mortgage-based decisions, but we've really got to see whether there's commercial. And, and obviously, there's two parts to TPP. One, one is the, um, sorry, third-party providers, in case anyone didn't really know, um, there's we the don't a- use acronyms. There's course. the AIPSPs, which are the yeah. account information ones, which I think we're talking about on this whole aggregation. But then there's the PIPSPs, the payment initiation providers. Do you see that being a, a useful tool to be able to take direct payments from websites? Is that something your customers are using or your members? We haven't seen a lot of use cases coming out from that yet. Again, there's a big fear in all of this. We need to see where it all settles out in terms of liability risk. I'm sure you know there's the there can be no direct contracts between the AIS PSP yeah. and the PISP. So there's, there's going to be this huge settling down of consumers' minds and in, in the counterparties' minds as to how 
the liabilities managed to get out of this because you can you can bet your bottom dollar the fraudsters are looking at this and rubbing their hands because suddenly they don't have to hack into a massive bank anymore they just need to hack into a small PISP mm. and um, all hell can break loose so you know it's going to be very interesting to see how this all, all pans out because these are some of the unintended consequences I was talking about earlier in principle it sounds like a brilliant idea yeah open up the data make a make an open wide marketplace is how that practically is going to be implemented. The, the talks we heard beforehand when they were all lobbying to get this through was that they want to make the consumer's life better. They want to enable consumers to tick a box and then whatever the best rate of card, credit card loan or loans or house insurance that they want will automatically be updated and it will be switched every time. So you could, you could almost imagine your, your, your home insurance being switched five times in a day because the rates get better. It, it seems very confusing, but in a in a sort of utopian world for the consumer to think that they're they're never paying too much for any of their sort of financial services that they're buying into does sound like a, a great idea. But how it will actually work is 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 beyond my comprehension. Yeah, me too. I th- I think the consumer focusing on price as a single single term of reference is not necessarily always the best thing to do because there's another parameter which is service and quality. And so using comparison tools or, or everything else can maybe a race to the bottom in terms of price, but it may subsequently turn out to be a race to the bottom in terms of service as well. Because let's not kill ourselves. This is a complicated business. Financial services cost money to provide, mm. and somebody ultimately has to pay for it. I think the whole thing, we, we, we talked about this before, there's, there's a world of opportunity, but there's also a world of missed opportunity. People are not always ready for the, for the next best thing, and it often takes a lot longer to go from concept to something people actually want to buy, I, I agree. I agree with that. I mean, if we if we go back looking at the kind of the account aggregation services, there's been account aggregation services before. It was, it was called screen scraping. Yeah, and headed by Yodling, I remember. I mean, how many people have multiple bank accounts that they all want to see in one dashboard in one place? I mean, I don't know. I can't imagine that most people have more than one bank account. Maybe that some of us in the payments industry may have more because we're constantly mystery shopping other products, but. You know, I'm not sure that there's a lot of demand in for, that, some, for some of these products. Yeah. So I've got a question that relates to that. So it seems like the big banks have been getting their act together in the last couple of years. So is open banking still really worth it? <laughs> have the banks stepped up to the mark so much that you don't need open banking? You you can you don't need a challenger banks. You can just work with the the big four. Yeah. I think there's two sides to this, isn't there? Well, first of all, have the banks got their act together? I mean, certainly a lot of the apps are a lot better than they were a couple of years ago. Are they world-class? You know, I'm not sure. But have they got their acts together? Well, I think the biggest problems are not, not to do with apps or, or even open banking. It's to do with legacy infrastructure and technical technical ability to, to continue because it wasn't so long ago. We've had TSB down for weeks. We've had problems at Barclays. There's been a lot of online banking systems that just simply appear not to be fit for purpose. And then when you stick another whole layer on top of that where they're giving that data to any number of third parties, are we going to see more problems? I'd, I'd hope not. I'd hope that they've, they've invested over the last six, six months. But in the last year, there's been a, a notable number of, of outages that have affected vast millions of people. It's almost like the innovations happen in the last mile on the front end, but actually behind the scenes, that innovation or the options are still the same components that everybody else is using. There are still millions of lines of COBOL out there that are running the world, which is pretty scary. Brilliant. 
this is <laughs> this is the best plug I could ever have for my new company. That's why I'm anyway, to say it. So where, where where is the cloud on all this? Are many banks running on the cloud now? I can't imagine many banks are. No, I mean small parts of the of the outsourced business might be, but it's still vast legacy legacy data centers and, and legacy code and. And so that's where the, that's where the new new banks have come in, and, and they're faster and more nimble because they're able to develop faster. They don't have 30, 40 years worth of code code fatigue. So um, you know, and I think that that's where all the the innovations been. People can provide the service cheaper than, than legacy banks. So how many banks are actually real bit rebuilding their core platforms to, to do this? I have no idea. I have no but idea. But no, I'm not. It's not something you hear on the news, is it? No, I mean, my impression is there's a lot of sticking plasters taking place. There's a lot of smoke mirrors, right? So there's there's people saying that they're doing it a specific way, but when you lift the layers, you find the same ingredients. But, you know, it, it is staggering when you when you do hear of companies that have had outages and then their solution is to apply a £7,500 million fix. <laughs> now, now, that's <laughs> that's not... You, you, could, you should be able to build a platform from ground up for significantly less than that, not be paying... Not be paying that amount of money just to just to fix something. That's but is it because they can't allow their system to go go down while they're doing the new system? Can, you can't you can't just plug and play a new system. You, you no, have to true. test and true. So I think, I think well, TSB a, did right. They had the new system. <laughs> did they? Yeah, they had the new system, and they were all going to migrate over like that. Oh. <laughs> I told you not to have those beans last night. <laughs> So I've got a question. Um, there's been lots of talk about how we're going towards a cashless society. But don't the poorest people in society rely on cash? How can these self-righteous fintechs claim to be about financial inclusion while going out the, of their way to remove access to cash? That's, 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 that's almost like your age 12 reading lesson for, yeah. for Suresh there. That was a, that was a long <laughs> sentence. without my glasses. Yeah. Without your glasses as well. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so there's been a lot of press, and particularly in the last couple of weeks, wasn't there? There was a report last week that said that, well, I think a couple of years ago, card payments overtook cash payments in terms of day-to-day payments. And there's a, there's a view that that's going to move from, a, I think, around 45% now down to around 20% by 2025. Wow. So a vast move away from cash. Now, as somebody that doesn't have any cash in his pocket and runs a cards business, that, you know, we're kind of all in favour of that. But there's been a huge backlash from people that are saying there's there's a, a, a large subsection of society that relies on cash, we potentially are going to make their lives miserable if, if we kind of enforce this electronic money. And I think that's true. I mean, there are a number of people out there, but I think this is a generational thing. I mean, the very fact that things have moved so much in the last five years, ten years, you look at you look to countries like uh, Denmark. Which is down almost, I think, five percent cash usage now. Clearly, it can work, but then you've got the counter side to that, where there's, there's states in America right now which are which are making it law that shops have to accept cash oh, because because right. the other way they've gone the other way. So I think the states of Philadelphia and New York as well, I think, are both enacting legislation at the moment to stop people saying you must accept cash. Wow. So there clearly is a. A social problem to address there, but these things are not insurmountable if, if people get together because you can make a case for electronic payments and it just it takes time a long time so it may be it's going to be slower than, than, than it needs to be but 
No, are we getting into an Orwellian society where everyone is monitored and like you, you, your payments are just made by your, I don't know, facial recognition or your blood or whatever? On the one hand, it's brilliant because it, it means that you don't need to use physical cash, but on the other side, it means that everything is being overseen. Well, that's true. And if you think about, and I don't want to cast aspersions here, but you know, a lot of the, anecdotally, I think a lot of people that want to use cash want to use it for a reason because they want their transactions to be anonymized or they don't want people to understand what they're doing or is there a subsect that don't even still know that prepaid exists people that can't get a credit card or maybe potentially can't get a bank account they may not know that prepaid exists as an alternative they, they may not they may not and so there's a there's a potentially a job to do there my personal view on this is that it's difficult without some level of coordinated approach to this and i think that has to be a governmental type approach that says well if there are this excluded network of people then we've got to provide a service for them whether that's a prepaid card or a basic bank account or something we've got to introduce it which is kind of if you recall what happened in india they, they, they issued a bunch of uh, payment cards which were also id cards and then took away a load of cash out of the, out of the marketplace and that wasn't necessarily successful truth be told but it just shows that if you do have a, a governmental type approach to it or a coordinated central approach, then you can it, make could, change. It, it could work. And it, I mean, I don't think in that case it did work. There's a lot of lessons to be learned, but there's no reason why, in principle, it shouldn't. Oh my God, you're going to give me that one? Yeah. <laughs> why do so many fintechs think they are so clever and successful when they don't actually make any money? Yes. <laughs> Oh, okay. simple answer. Simple answer from Paul there. Yes, um, no, I, th- I think yes. There are. There do are. Do they think they're clever? I'm, I'm sure that there's a bunch of very clever people involved in, a, in, a, in that have produced a bunch of very clever products. Many of them are yet to make any money, and I think that's widely documented. And you know, it's a different approach to to getting your products out there. I mean, you, you expect usually in a business to make make losses for a little while. It's a question of how long can you sustain those losses until the rug gets pulled out and people, your shareholders, start asking you to make a return. And so there's a lot of companies out there with these kind of unicorn status that have got some very clever products, do some very clever things, but in many cases it's they're not making money and it's in some cases it's difficult to see where they are and going what, to make what money. What do you think will happen to them? I mean, we, we have seen some companies that got to unicorn status disappear in a puff of smoke almost the same way as the unicorns did. <laughs> Yeah, or the what, like power power technologies. PAWA. Personally, I think there will be. There'll be more casualties. I think there'll be more casualties, and you know, I think we've seen it over the years in in prepaid on a much smaller scale. There's been businesses that have taken large investment, haven't been able to make the product viable in the long term, and have disappeared. Is there any any closing messages you want to kind of get out there before we get kicked out of your office? I would just say, yeah, if you if you're involved in the payments industry, involved as a payments institute or an e-money issuer then and, and you want to genuinely have your voice heard as a, as, a, as a group collective then come and talk to us about PIF because we're there to help the industry so it's a self-elected body the members are are the owners and it's there for collective good so come talk to us on that note thank you Paul I think that's a wrap thank yep. you let's get out of here okay, okay. bye